Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech, and it is time for a classic episode of Tech Stuff. This one originally published on October 30th, 2013, and that would be Halloween-een, or Halloween Eve, which is already an Eve. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's titled, There's a Halloween Event on the Horizon. I remember this. It's where I got to talk about the movie Event Horizon and the wonderfully terrible technologies in that film. I hope you guys enjoy it. We thought we'd take uh, a horror movie and look at the science and technology in that horror movie as well. Just kind of discuss what that horror movie is all about. Sort of the same way we did Independence Day back for the 4th of July. Uh, now, there aren't that many horror movies that we could think of that have a heavy tech angle. There are some. And there are plenty. And we also, I mean, you know, we, we wanted to do something that isn't um, as completely offensive as, as it could be. I mean, you know, it, it's the movie that we chose is rated R. Yes. And um, I think both of us enjoy it. Uh, for yeah, from a kind of tongue-in-cheek way, sometimes yeah, I I genuinely enjoy this film, but it is not what I would call a good movie. Uh, it is Event Horizon. Yes, it is a space movie. It's a movie set in space. It's all about space. Uh, let's go ahead and give you an overview of what the basic plot is, in case you haven't seen it. Uh, right. Although I will say that the, this this discussion is going to involve lots of spoilers, and and like I said, we do enjoy this movie. I I want you to see it and to not be spoiled when you go into it. So if you have not ever seen the film and you are of an appropriate age and constitution to watch a thing with, with kind of gory violence and, uh, <laughs> yes. and mild nudity, uh, uh, occasional cursing, then maybe, maybe just turn this podcast off and wait until you can watch the movie. Right. Now, I will say, since the film came out in 1997, all bets are off. So here we go. <laughs> Basic plot. All right. You've got a ship. It's called the Event Horizon, and it's supposedly a research ship that's meant to explore the further reaches of our solar system. And on its maiden voyage, it disappeared somewhere just beyond Neptune. Now, that happens in the year 2040. Seven years later, a research uh, or a rescue ship, rather, is sent out, sent out uh, with a, a particular engineer, a scientist who had worked on the Event Horizons um, uh, propulsion system. He actually designed the entire ship. Yeah. Uh, so he's he's going along with them. They don't know what their mission is when they first leave, but they are to go out to Neptune and try and find the origin of a mysterious transmission that, that apparently came from is the coming Event from the Event Horizon right. and, and rescue the ship and the crew, if at all possible. Right. So uh, they go out there and uh, bad stuff happens, y'all. Uh, first of all, it turns out that the Event Horizon's secret propulsion system is something that is called a gravity drive in the movie. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that it kind of uh, it, it messes kind of, with space, right? It creates a black hole, essentially. Yeah. And we'll get into that a little bit more later on. Yeah, but we'll that's yeah, we'll we'll discuss the entire black hole thing at length uh, because it's interesting. It, it's what's really interesting is how much of the science the movie at least attempted to get right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I want to give it a lot of kudos. I yeah. do. I do think that it really tried. Like it, gold it, star, you tried. It didn't just use black hole as some sort of magic. Thing. Yeah, magic placeholder. No. Right. They tried to to find a way of uh, explaining this, and there there is some scientific basis for some of the stuff they talk about. Uh, anyway, but because it's a horror movie, um. When it tried to create this hole in space time to travel through, instead it accidentally ended up in a hell dimension. Yeah. Um, the idea and being brought that, a bunch of hell back with it. Right. And 
So the and ship is haunted. The ship is haunted by hell. And or uh, is hell itself. Yeah, it could it's actually kind of be unclear. possessed. Yeah. Uh, it's a little weird. Yeah, so the idea being that that when the gravity drive is, is uh, activated, the ship travels through a dimension, in this case, a hellish dimension of pure chaos and evil, as one That's character a says. direct quote, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that, yeah, it brings something back. And the crew is deader than dead. Super dead. Yeah, they are so dead. <laughs> you, you see lots of really, really dead people. And, uh, and then the rescue mission comes aboard and tries to do what they're supposed to do. And then hilarity ensues. Uh, we won't spoil everything, but essentially, uh, obviously you have to dismantle the rescue ship or else they could just leave. So that gets so taken that care happens. of. Uh, then you have to separate out the crew members for various reasons and then have terrible things happen to them. And all this happens at great uh, gore and uh, and detail and uh, it's entertaining. It's not you know it's not Shakespeare, but it's fun. I uh, I really appreciate that the film and and this was this was directed by Paul Anderson, a Paul Anderson. He has some initials in there somewhere that I'm completely missing and I did not write them down. But he's the same guy who directed the Mortal Kombat movie. Yes, he said that he wanted to have a turn at, at directing something a little more uh, highbrow. No, he was talking huh. about gory and. Uh, <laughs> He wanted to make, he wanted a chance to make an R-rated picture after that's, making that's Mortal right, Kombat. Because Mortal Kombat was PG-13. Yeah. Um, and, and I, and I do, like I said, I, I want to give the film a lot of kudos. Uh, you know, okay, so it starts out with this brief timeline. And I'd say that for 1997, it was a hopeful but not completely ridiculous timeline. They were saying that the first permanent moon colony in this, in this science fiction setting was in, uh, 2015. And that commercial mining on Mars began in 2032. 2032, considering that, you know, we've got some, some, uh, out, outfits here on Earth that are trying to get to Mars around that same time period. All right. Yeah. And the lunar colony in 2015 is way too ambitious, but, well, but back in point, 1997, certainly. there was yeah. no way of knowing that the space program would was be. going to, yeah, going to have so many financial hits. Right. Um, so. Yeah, getting into it, uh, one thing that confused me was the idea of even having a ship. Um, now, the cover, the Event Horizons uh, Outer Solar System Exploration was mission, a cover. that's a cover story. Yeah, it's it still was seems- NSA code black, the, right. re- the real reason. That's yes. the actual thing that they said in the film, and I'm yeah. still not sure what that means, yeah. but it sounds really nifty. Right, I guess it just means super-duper secret, y'all. <laughs> uh, you have to know the secret handshake in order to get access to it. But the, the thing that made me confused was just the idea of even building a ship for that sort of thing. We've built well, So that probes. people can get out onto the surface of Neptune and walk around and <laughs> poke things. On gas giants. Yeah, right. that sounds like a great idea. Um, you know, uh, really hot gas giants where the winds are 2.1 thousand kilometers per hour. Right. That's Neptune, exactly Neptune where Neptune has the most high force winds in the entire solar system. Uh, not a not a very nice place to go visit. Uh, yeah, so it's... And, and lots of methane in the atmosphere, too. Not great. Hydrogen and helium also in the atmosphere. It's not a very uh, great place. Planet to, to go visit if you don't have some massive protection around you. It just seemed weird because we could do robotic probes, that kind of stuff for that sort of thing. But whatever. So uh, they'll also just get out of the way. This is one of those space movies where we do hear sounds in space. Uh-huh. And, and the initial sequence turns out to be a dream sequence. So you can't entirely blame the fact that you're hearing a thunderstorm on Neptune from space on on the fact that it's. Yeah, it's some sort of hallucination. It's a or hallucination dream. or dream or something. But, so. but assuming the rest of the movie is not a hallucination or dream, which, I, as far as I can tell, that's not the that's intent. Not the point. No. Uh, there's plenty of examples of hearing sound in space. Absolutely. Not necessarily that the characters hear it, but the audience hears it. Also, a good point from from this general area of the film. 
they're um they're showing spaceships as being three-dimensional and space as being three-dimensional and things coming at each other from different angles, which I absolutely approve of. Right, it's not all in the same plane. Right. Like it would be in most Star Trek. Yeah. Not all Star Trek, I, but up most in, Star up Trek. Up until some certain point, Star Trek really only discovered that space is multidimensional, I <laughs> yeah, think, in late, like late 1990s. In the game, late in the game. Yeah. yeah, and so there's also some other interesting things. Uh, they, they, they do have artificial gravity in this, in this universe. Mm-hmm. We don't know how they generate it, although they appear to have some other means of controlling gravity with the gravity drive. They talk about using electromagnets to control the flow of gravitons. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, gravitons right now are a hypothetical particle. We think they exist based upon the math, but we have not identified or observed gravitons. But, so, I'm, but I'm cool with this science fiction film positing that we're going to discover the graviton particle within the next 40 years. Okay. That's cool. Well, 30 years. Yeah. 30 years. Yeah, oh, so ooh, right. That's right. Sorry, I'm old. That's cool. Yeah. So <laughs> so it's it's. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where maybe if they discovered gravitons, they also figured out how to create artificial gravity. Because what they are not doing is creating it through rotating a spaceship or space station right. in order to use uh, the centripetal force to kind of fake gravity. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, we're we'll, we'll give them that, too. Uh, I won't I don't understand ever shaving with a straight razor. Uh, I ever. don't have to shave my face, so I just don't uh, rem- think that's a wise idea to do in space. But then, I mean, if you got artificial gravity, you're pretty. So. This is this is Sam Neill's character, Sam Neill playing the the physicist who, as it turns out, designed this Event Horizon yeah, ship, yeah. and um and he's got some problems that the <laughs> film goes into pretty extensively. And so the the straight razor, as it turns out, is symbolic. Um, right. You find out that his wife uh, committed suicide with a straight razor. With a straight razor. Um, which makes me even more concerned. For him, that he is using that to shave with. Yeah, y'all, this is a bad. This is going bad places. The, uh, a psychologist would probably have a few things to say about it. Uh, the, I thought that the space station that Sam Neill's character is on at the beginning of the film was a little odd in that it's a it, think of a massive grid made out of like scaffolding, or mm-hmm. if you've ever worked on a uh, theater set where you've got the the grid that you hang the lights off of that looks like the the skeleton of this space station it just looks like a massive grid of this stuff it looks like the set to stomp or something yeah and occasionally you have these habitats that are uh you know you can tell that there are these these things that are connected to the gridding grid structure that are where everyone lives but they don't seem to be connected to each other like they're on different parts of the grid and this thing is they enormous they don't seem to be connected yeah, yeah. you wouldn't really want to spacewalk in between them because right. spacewalking is pretty dangerous uh, in low earth orbit which yeah, exactly. the station is said to I be assume, in so. is, it, is it in is it, it says it yeah, a little a little, a little oh, okay. tight title comes up that says low earth I, I didn't pay attention at that point and ah. I took notes and I could not remember if the space station was in orbit around earth or Mars, because uh, there were comments that made me think, well, maybe they were in on orbit of Mars. So that makes some of the rest of this discussion much easier for me. <laughs> but <laughs> okay, uh, I did think it was neat that it looked modular, which meant, you know, which that makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah. Right. You right. would want to be able to build onto any sort of permanent space station uh, in a way that would allow you to not have to reinvent the wheel every time. So if it's modular, you just add a new module on. That makes sense. So, all right, I'm giving it that, too. The rescue ship is called the Lewis and Clark, mm-hmm. uh, named after the explorers who, uh, quote unquote, discovered lots of stuff in America. If you can consider people who had been living there for hundreds and hundreds of years to be not important enough to say they discovered it. But hey, uh, times. <laughs> um, I thought the design of this was a little weird, particularly the bridge. I, I wrote down that they're seating 
structure oh, on the bridge yeah, was that, weird. Oh, yeah, that main captain's chair drives me crazy. So, so this is a bridge in which all of the, you know, crew member chairs are normal kind of chairs. They they can roll around a little bit, but they're yeah. basically affixed so to the ground. Kind of like office chairs. Office chairs-ish. Um, and this captain's chair is suspended from this kind of track in the mm-hmm. ceiling like a like a roller coaster seat. Yeah. And it it looks really goofy. Yeah. And I'm not La- sure what they were going Lawrence for. Lawrence Fishburne, who plays the captain, uh, sits in this chair. It means that his feet are actually dangling off the ground. He's not he doesn't have contact with the ground. It allows him to turn 360 degrees and move along this track. But so would a chair with wheels on it and or standing up. Yeah. So I don't understand this, because if you were to argue, well, this way, if there were some sort of problem, uh, his chair wouldn't go sliding all over the room. But then everyone else's chairs seem to have that ability. There's one guy who pushes back from his workstation and rolls halfway across the bridge. So if you're not going to do it for everybody, don't do it for anyone. That's what I say. Let's make this fair. Gosh, darn it. Um <laughs> But yeah, I just thought that was a weird thing. Yeah, um, now, I, I did want to say that I that I do actually like the design aesthetic of the Lewis and Clark um, because it's more functional than pretty most of the time. Yes. And I feel like it's very much based in the general aesthetic of today's NASA ships. Right. It looks it looks like it's functional. It doesn't look like it's made out of, you know, it's not it's not some sort of Star Wars type thing where everything's pristine and beautiful as right. long as you're working for the Empire. Uh, <laughs> it's it's definitely it's more on the Firefly range where this yeah. this looks like this is something that does work. It doesn't look like it's a set necessarily. Right. Um, uh, you know, it's a little bit roomier than perhaps a real spaceship would be yeah. in order to have those those good Camera, camera shots. angles, yeah. But, yeah. but other than that, it I'm reminded, willing to give them that. It reminded me a little bit of like an expanded submarine, which yeah. is kind of what you would expect to see. What you're going see. for, sure. Uh, the propulsion system I thought was really interesting. They talk, this is kind of just mentioned offhand in dialogue, that it's an ion drive, which those which things really exist. Which is a really real exist. thing, yeah, yeah. So an ion drive uses thrusters and ionized particles. Those are charged particles in order to accelerate. And they can generate these charged particles and excite them in two major ways right now. Uh, we have the electrostatic force, which involves usually bombarding particles with electron beams so that you build up a negative charge. Uh, and there's also the electromagnetic approach where you use electromagnets to excite these ions. At any rate, either way you're using this, you can output these ions and create thrust. Uh, but the thing about this is that it builds acceleration. It, the accelerating force is very low. So, uh, it reaches very fast acceleration at the end of this process, but yeah. but it takes a minute to get there. It takes a long time. Yeah, you're talking about like it's it's continuously accelerating. So it's not like it accelerates and then just stops. But it, the rate of acceleration is very low. So uh, I'm a little concerned <laughs> that they wouldn't be able to get from Earth to Neptune in any reasonable amount of time using an ion drive. I mean. I guess you could do it, but I, I think it would take longer than 56 days, which is how long it takes within the film. I actually did do the math, and uh, the current ion thrusters that we've got can reach speeds of some uh, 90,000 kilometers per second, which is over 200,000 miles per hour in space, which is uh, pretty screaming compared with, like, the space shuttle, which is about 18,000 kilometers per second. Um, but even if the vehicle could go at that speed the entire distance from earth to neptune which it could not see above re it takes a long time to warm up right um 
it would still take 553 days unless I did the math wrong, yeah, which I don't, that, I don't think I did. That sounds about right, because the distance between Earth and Neptune is about 4.4 billion kilometers. Right. And granted, we're talking about 40 years in the future, and 40 years can bring a lot of technological changes. So sure, sure. I think it's a possibility, but it's a stretch. Yeah, cutting it down. I mean, you're just talking about such huge distances. And keep in mind, 4.4 billion kilometers, that's the average distance between Neptune and Earth. Uh, As right, we know, right. their I, orbits change. Yeah, so. I, I calculated that um, from the closest point at which it's about 4.3 billion miles apart. Right. Yeah, and, and even then you have to... Planet, like just as we had to plan the Curiosity the rover to land oh, on Mars okay, that, yeah. months in advance, because you know the orbits as the they're they, you know the plants continue to move across their orbital paths even after you launch the the ship because they do Rude. not just hold in place. <laughs> yeah, so you can't you can't just launch when they're closest because they'll be moving apart from each other from that moment moving on. So it's complicated, y'all. Yes. Um, but at any rate, in order to uh, not be bored for some 50 days on this ship, the crew... Or die. Or die, I guess. The crew goes into stasis, right? They they do give the excuse of, of, of at the speeds that we're going, your skull would liquefy. Which is not true. That is super inaccurate. Okay, yeah. They're talking about they would uh, endure forces of excess of 30 Gs, or around 30 Gs. That's 30 times the gravitational force you feel here on Earth. Uh, all right, here's some other issues. First of all, going into stasis, that's always a problem, right? As far as we understand it today. Uh, because anything that is going to uh, slow down your bodily functions is not really that good for you. And most yeah. of the time, uh, movies portray it as freezing, or in this case, it's being in this giant that tub of, goo. of stirf. Yeah, it's it's more liquid than goo, I would say. Yeah, it comes yeah. out like water. But, it's, um, but that's just not good for your body. No, no. Your skin will absorb liquid, especially once the oils begin to wash off. That's why if you spend too long in the bath or in the pool, your fingers start to prune up. The, your epidermis is absorbing water, and wherever the epidermis and dermis meet, it's anchored. That's where you have those those valley parts, the crevices that are in the, the pruny skin, and then the the bulgy bits. That's where all the liquid has been absorbed. So imagine that all over your body. It's not great. Uh, it gives rise to potential for bacterial infections. It's bad stuff. Also, your muscles would atrophy after you had been spending that much time. We're talking about you know two months in in non you know motion you would be in bad shape by the end of that. They don't appear to be at all affected in that way. They right. cough a bit and that's it. Yeah. Uh, Sam Neill's character, who is not used to it, kind of stumbles a little bit and yeah. like isn't sure if he wants coffee. And that's right. that's about the that's worst. About, that that's the, the worst problem he has. Uh, <laughs> but the other side of it, the whole 30 G issue. So first of all, the the record for enduring uh, uh, gravitational forces goes to uh, to John Stapp, who for a very, very short moment, experienced a force of 46.2 Gs. He was uh, doing uh, acceleration tests. You know, this was part of the whole, like, how much can a person endure? Uh, turns out, uh, you know, anything above, say, 20 Gs or so, you're talking eyeballs out gravitational forces. That's what they refer to it as, by the way, guys. So at 46.2, his eyeballs stayed in his head. They didn't pop out. Well, that's a relief. But he did suffer permanent eye damage. He oh. he had uh, vision problems for the rest of his life. He did live a, a good long while after that. It wasn't like he you know suffered serious health issues that led to his death. But he did have serious health issues. They just were chronic and lasted you know for the rest of his life. So uh, 
But at 46.2 Gs, even at that incredible amount of uh, force applied to you, your skull will not liquefy. Your brains and eyeballs might if, if you're exposed to it for a long enough period of time. You know, so a certain uh, 52 days, like a couple months. You might. Yeah, you, you might have some issues uh, at that point. So, yes, it would be deadly. However, I'm pretty sure that submerging someone in liquid would not mean that you had a get out of jail free card for enduring that amount of force. Yeah, especially not water. I don't think that's how physics yeah. works. No, if you if you were suddenly put under the ocean at a depth where the pressure would be enough to crush you, you still get crushed. Even if you, you know, the, the whole thing in the abyss where they have to breathe in the liquid uh, oxygen is meant to say that if you have, that you're uh, being pressurized. Yeah. If you have air inside your lungs, then that's going to pop your lungs. But by putting liquid, you can endure more pressure. You still are not able to endure endless amounts of pressure. So I'm not sure that that would necessarily help. But then that brings us to the kind of computer devices they use, which are tablets. Yeah. uh, And I think that for 1997, it's a pretty, again, it's a pretty good estimation of what they were going to have in In 40 years. You know, know, no one working on this movie clearly had talked to Steve Jobs and and knew that the iPad was going to come out. Yeah. In 97, that might have been a little premature. Well, yeah. yeah, But yeah, I mean, it's they they use tablet computers. I think by 2040, we'll probably have moved beyond your basic tablet. But again, you're extrapolating from now as opposed to from 1997. And that's another thing that I'm willing to give them a pass on due to the fact that all of the tech on their ship, which I think is purposefully clunky and, and I think it's for purely aesthetic reasons, but um, but I can excuse it by the fact that all of the tech on their ship needs to withstand the same forces, these incredible skull liquefying forces. Um, and so that therefore, if it's a little bit clunky, maybe that's why. Just butting in here to say we'll be right back to talk more about Event Horizon in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break. Now let's get back to Event Horizon and let's finally talk about this gravity drive thing. Yes. It's it's bizarre. Well, okay, so so we hear the scientific explanation of it before we ever see the thing. Yes, we do. Uh, he says that the uh, gravity drive will create an infinite curvature of space, uh, it resulting in a singularity. And uh, here's the thing, guys. That's a real thing. Singularity, infinite, well... Real in the sense of this is how we understand black holes right now, according to uh, general relativity. Uh, right. Yeah, th- this is absolutely a concept that is based in reality. Now, super proud of the way that they described it. I, it the, the scientist character goes into this kind of long spiel and, and all of the, the other guys go like, go like go like. In English, please. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of wish that they had let him go for another half hour because right. I could have listened to that. It's a hilarious because first he says, oh, well, in layman's terms, and it's really pretty simple. I mean, it's the simplest <laughs> description of a black hole you can get to without super dumbing it down, which he ultimately does do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but it's, he's, he describes, um, a retaining magnetic field focusing a narrow beam of gravitons to fold space time. Yeah. And then this creates a wormhole through which a ship can travel. And the idea being that you can fold space time so that the two points that you are interested in, your beginning and your destination, are adjacent to one another, even if in reality they are across the universe from each other. So let's use an example. Let's say that you get an old style roadmap. I'm talking about a paper roadmap. OK, uh-huh. you got a paper roadmap and you are you want to travel between New York City and Los Angeles, California. And normally you would have to trace a, a pathway that would go along highways and you would travel thousands of miles. 
But what if you could just fold the roadmap so that New York City and Los Angeles were touching one another on the two sides? Mm -hmm. And then you were able to magically jump between New York City and Los Angeles, then unfold the map so it's back to its regular space. Suddenly it looks like you've traveled faster than light. You have crossed thousands of miles in an instant, apparently violating Einstein's theory of relativity. Except for the part where Einstein and Rosen in the 1930s, I believe, came up with a concept of wormholes that allows for this, which says that if you have um, a a mass on that little New York blip and a mass on the L.A. blip Mm -hmm. that are um, that are both massive enough to push space time towards itself in in the way that space time is hypothetically a folded moving sheet of space time because matter curves space time and space time determines how matter moves then then eventually you're going to get these two points touching and that if they were touching enough that they could break through yeah essentially you're talking at that point matter could break through. you're you're removing you're removing distance right you're you're no longer traveling because you're not traveling faster than light at that moment at that moment those two distances are touching So, or those two points are touching. So there isn't a distance between them. If there were a distance between them and you move faster than light, that's when Einstein says, hey, 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 stop breaking the law. All right. So let's talk about how is this related to actual real world physics? So from what we understand with black holes, here's the deal. You got a, you got a star that's at least eight solar masses or larger. And as that star dies, it loses energy. The It begins to collapse in on itself. And so it starts to collapse in. Uh, gravitational forces get stronger. You get this tiny point that gathers all the mass. Uh, we usually refer to it in math as being uh, a, a point that has zero volume. But because there is mass within that zero volume, it has infinite density. So you've got this point of infinite density. Uh, that's creating this incredible gravitational pull in a, a large region around it. Now we define the region around it where let's say there's a, let's say there's a, an imaginary boundary that you can see around a black hole, which you, which there would not be, but yeah, but, but let's, let's imagine that you can see this boundary and you know, that boundary represents the, the section of space where if you were to pass beyond that boundary, you would no longer be able to escape the gravitational pull of that black hole. This is the point of no return. Yeah, this is this is the point where even light itself cannot escape the black hole. It just will go right toward the singularity, depending upon what the singularity, how the singularity is formed. We'll get into that in a second. Yeah. Um. So that point, that 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 region, area, that yeah. region is called the event horizon. Yeah. And I would like to state for the record right now, the <laughs> terrible idea it is to name your ship after the point of no return. Yeah, it's like it's like calling calling your your boat the uh, the iceberg uh, <laughs> magnet. You know, you don't want to call your boat iceberg magnet. Or perhaps akin to naming your undersea paradise after something out of the Book of Revelation. It's just a terrible or even Atlantis plan. Yeah, you don't you know you don't want to necessarily go with that connotation if you think about it for too long. But yes, so the event horizon is named after this region of space where if you pass through it you are pretty much guaranteed to go into the singularity. When I say pretty much guaranteed, there are some caveats. All right, so because the, there are different types of black holes. We quantify and we classify black holes based on three basic features. These are pretty much the only features black holes have according to uh, our theory of relativity uh, because they're weird things. They have mass, they may or may not have spin, and they may or may not have a, a charge. So... The basic black hole that uh, is probably the simplest version, although not the most 
commonly found in the universe is the Schwarzschild black hole, which has no spin. It does have an event horizon. And essentially, this this black hole, you can just think of it as a, a single point in space of that infinite density that is pulling you toward it if you get beyond that event horizon. So it's just everything goes toward the center of that point. You don't have any rotation there. You know, you can try to use uh, thrust to keep you from accelerating into the point, but it's just it, after a point, it's, there's no point in, in doing that anymore either. Um, you're done. Spaghettification mm-hmm. is on the way. <laughs> yeah. Which is where that's the, the idea that as you get closer to the black hole's gravity, uh, things elongate and, and become noodle-like, thus the spaghettification. It is uh, probably not terribly pleasant, although I'm, I'm guessing you would not be alive at that point anyway. I'm thinking not. Yeah. Um, but I think more frequently, uh, theoretical physicists say that this probably happens more frequently and also certainly more frequently in films is yeah. predicted the um, the care black hole. Yes, the care, K-E-R-R. Uh, so the care black hole is formed from solar masses. Uh, and because stars usually are rotating, there's a rotational force that has to conserve the angular momentum. This is this is another law that you have to follow. It has to conserve that angular momentum. So the black hole itself is spinning. Right, which is where you get those pretty graphics with, with that kind of rotational cloud of stuff yeah, falling you, into a black you hole. Say the black hole at the center of the Milky Way is rotating. Therefore, it's dragging space as it rotates, which causes this rotational force that ends up affecting the entire galaxy. It's pretty remarkable stuff, right? Well, the other interesting thing about this is that that spinning means the singularity at the center of a care hole is not a single point uh, like it is in uh, Schwarzschild. Instead, it's an infinitely thin ring that is also spinning. And they are a little more complicated. They don't have just the event horizon. They also have something called the ergosphere. This is the region of space that is distorted because of the rotational force of this black hole. So... This is an overly simple model that I'm going to give you. It does not directly relate to how we see this happening in in the universe. But imagine putting your hand in a uh, a container of tranquil water and then moving your hand around and seeing how it disturbs the water. The ergosphere is kind of like that. It's this region where that rotational force is dragging the space-time and distorting it as a result, uh, which is kind of funky. Um, there's also uh, uh, another little region that's the static limit. That's the boundary between the ergosphere and normal space time that is not being directly dragged and distorted by this black hole. Well, the interesting thing about this theory uh, is that uh, well, one interesting thing is that some people have proposed the hypothesis that if you were to encounter one of these black holes, and you were able to enter the event horizon in a particular way where you could slingshot around that thin rotating singularity, you might not fall into the singularity. You might get shot out again, but you get shot out at a different point in space-time. Thus, you would have this wormhole theory. I don't know that you could necessarily control exactly where you would end up or when you would end up, because space-time, there's also the possibility this could allow for time travel, though that 
increases the grandfather paradox. And there's other issues that we'd have to get into. That's an entirely different podcast. I, I don't recommend trying that without a bow tie and a fez. I tried doing it, but then I went back in time and stopped myself. So I'm, like, I just can't, guys. I mean, I'll just do it again. And, and the Wayback Machine is still in Mongolia, so we're kind of stuck. But so this is a hypothetical possibility. Yes. I mean, and, and all of this, we should say, is based upon theoretical astrophysics, which if you couldn't tell from the name, um, is, I mean, we've never gone out in a ship and checked out a black hole and been like, oh, that's how it works. Yeah. It's, you know, this is all based on uh, the way that we observe electromagnetic radiation behaving in spaces around what we have called black holes. Yeah. And, and it's also based on a lot of math that we've tried to make work out. But things like infinite density and zero volume, it's really hard to deal with that. It's, it's impossible for us to truly conceive of it. It's beyond our, our ability to do so. And in fact, some people have gone so far, in fact, I don't think it's that far, really, but to say that singularity is really more of a placeholder. Like the terms we're using are placeholders that are good enough for now, but we need better clarification and some integration of the quantum model of physics might end up clarifying these terms yeah. so that we, we don't just have these vague placeholders. Right. There is speaking of, of quantum stuff um, there. Uh, scientists are theorizing that this is happening at the quantum level, like at like at the Planck kind of level mm -hmm. of particles. Wormholes are being created uh, a lot. Yeah. And well, that was one of the things that they talked about with the Large Hadron Collider, right. was that these collisions could result in tiny little black holes that are on the, you know, atomic or smaller scale and last less than, a, you know, like a like a nanosecond long. That's how long they last. But it may, of course, that knowing that they were going to make some black holes that made some media outlets go, oh, we're all going to get sucked into a black hole and die. And thus we had things like, you know, has the world been destroyed by the Large Hadron Collider? And you go to the URL and it would say no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, one interesting thing, there's a paper published in the Physical Review Letters recently by Rodolfo Gambini and Jorge Pullen. And it was about a quantum black hole model in which the black hole doesn't have a singularity, but rather is a gateway. So this gateway would put you into possibly another universe, not necessarily another dimension, but another universe. Uh, there's some issues with this that we'd have to uh, explore. It may very well be true, and it may be that this is the beginning of replacing those placeholders like singularity with more specific terms. But some of the problems involve things like, well... You probably still wouldn't survive any kind of trip through a, a black hole. The, the tidal forces you would undergo as you would go through this intense gravity would still squish you and kill you. If you did somehow find a way to survive, there's no guarantee that what universe you would uh, end up in would have the same laws of physics that our universe has. And thus you end up dying anyway because physics don't work. Um, and then there's the problem of. Well, if there are black holes in various universes that are connecting each other together, where are the outputs? Because we don't see any in our universe. Where are the white holes? These these holes where matter from the black hole on the other end is being spewed out into the universe. Because if the black hole end is pulling everything in, the white hole end must be pushing everything back out. And if we don't see evidence of that in our universe, either that means that we only have exits, no entrances, or there's some other problems with this, uh, this uh, uh, theory. Or it may just be that we haven't found a way to observe it yet. I don't know. Maybe it turns out that white holes are the uh, the source of all dark, dark matter, which represents more mass than anything else we can observe. We don't know what dark matter is. Maybe that's it. If it turns out to be that, you can mail my Nobel Prize. 
uh, our address is on the website. <laughs> so at any rate, we're going to assume that in the movie, they want to open up a care black hole, K-E-R-R, not C-A-R-E, and they're going to use that to zip over to some other part of the, the universe and that things went wrong. So I think it, you think it's safe to say that that's more or less what they meant based upon what's said in the film. Uh, I feel like that's extrapolating, but a fair yes. extrapolation. I mean, you know, I think that he was talking about a pretty straight wormhole kind of situation. Yeah, but I'm, I'm just trying to justify it any way I can. Yeah. I mean, it could be that that the science in Event Horizon back in 1997 was ahead of its time and that the quantum research that we're talking about right now ends up being exactly what, or more or less, what they were saying in that movie, which would be kind of cool. Because then you're like, well, the science was wrong, but then it was right again, huh. based upon our understanding. Well, we've got a lot more to say now that we've got the black hole stuff out of the way. But before we do, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Now, you've probably tried Hulu.com. Now with Hulu Plus, you can watch your favorite shows anytime, anywhere. Hulu Plus lets you watch thousands of hit TV shows and a selection of acclaimed movies on your television or on the go with your smartphone or tablet. And it all streams in HD for the best viewing experience. With Hulu Plus, you can watch your favorite current TV shows like Saturday Night Live, Community, and Family Guy. And you can also check out exclusive content, including Hulu originals like The Awesome, starring SNL Seth Meyers, and Moon Boy, starring Chris O'Dowd from Bridesmaids. Hulu Plus also offers a great selection of acclaimed films. For only $7.99 a month, you can stream as many TV shows and movies as you want, wherever you want. Right now, you can try Hulu Plus free for two weeks when you go to HuluPlus.com forward slash tech. That's a special offer for our listeners, so make sure you use HuluPlus.com forward slash tech so you get the extended free trial and they know we sent you. Go to HuluPlus.com forward slash tech now. You know, one of the things I love about Hulu Plus is getting access to old shows that uh, I did. You know, I, I, I remember loving when they were on, but hadn't really revisited in a long time. One of those, of course, is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, Joss Whedon really made his name with this series, and uh, it, it was really, it changed television. There are so many shows now that obviously follow in that same kind of model. So if you never actually seen that series, I highly recommend it. Go check that out. All right, so let's get back to the movie. Now, we've talked about the gravity drive. We talked about the ion propulsion. We talked about whether or not your skull would liquefy. Surely we've gotten through all the problems, right? Oh, we're actually still pretty early in the movie. This only takes us up through before they're even on the titular event horizon. So yeah. we've got a lot of ground. We've got a lot of space to cover. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the, all right. There, there's a good side and a bad side to this, Lauren. The good side is that pretty soon we're going to be talking about supernatural stuff, which has nothing to do with technology, and then we're okay. Oh, right, right, because when you start talking about hell dimensions invading, I'm like, well, I'll give that a pass, because I don't, I, I don't have fiction. any data a, on yeah, how we, that would work. It doesn't involve technology or any science that we understand at this moment, so therefore we cannot comment on it. However, uh, there however, are some science stuff we can talk about. Yeah, okay, so, so when our search and rescue crew of the Lewis and Clark arrives at the event horizon, it is... Uh, I guess it's supposed to be an orbit of Neptune. I, that's that was what I felt. It was supposed to be. It's in but a it's decaying kind of, orbit around Neptune, but it's but it's kind of within Neptune's atmosphere, atmosphere because which is there a are all of these big storms going on. And, yeah, and it is accurate that there would be big storms on Neptune. Um, it, it is right. much much like Jupiter. It has these very giant, very violent, um, slightly quicker storms. Uh, the storms on Jupiter are much longer lasting. Right. But here's the problem is that if, if that ship were in fact in within the atmosphere, that atmosphere would slow the ship's uh, pathway down so much that it would have just 
the orbit would have decayed much more rapidly. The ship would be crashing into Neptune. Oh, right. So the clouds there are a problem because it would suggest that it's too late. The, the If it's truly in orbit, it would be above the atmosphere. Uh, but since it's in the atmosphere, I think that we have to say this is for the spooky effect. Because how can you have a haunted house movie in space without a thunderstorm going on outside? <laughs> Right. I'd say pretty easily. Um, you can I mean, totally. I mean, I've seen Alien and that basically worked, I mean, which isn't a haunted house situation. But, but. It's still close. It's close. I mean, you know, you follow, we're playing upon the same primal fears, obviously. Um, I'm just amazed there weren't space wolves howling outside the, the windows of the ship. But uh, actually, there there were enough characters having hallucinations that I am I am. I am actually shocked that they did not have space wolves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe we missed it because some of those were like (laughs) montages of really fast clips of, you know, this just looks like a a Clive Barker nightmare scenario smashed into half a second. So maybe there were some space wolves in there. We don't know. But there definitely was a storm. Yes. Um, If anyone, by the way, wants to Photoshop some space wolves into some footage from from Event Horizon, I would be... looking at you, Aaron Cooper. (laughs) I'm absolutely willing to read your name on air for that. So, um, uh, all right, what about the... The way that they, before they get on the Event Horizon, they decide to take a look and see if there's anything alive on it. They do a life scan. Right. Well, there's a bunch of life scanning related technology that happens in this middle portion of the film. And uh, and yes, one is from the Lewis and Clark. Yep. And then once they get onto the ship, they've got these little uh, shiny laser related hand devices. Yeah, that, mostly it looks like a laser that's put through a splitter of some sort. Uh-huh. And I'm not sure how that would work. Maybe it's... Uh, I'm thinking thermal. That's the closest yeah. I can think of. It's something that is warmer than the than the surrounding environment would suggest a life form. Uh, or if you've got extremely sensitive audio technology, I suppose that you could scan for heartbeats sure. or something like that. Right. You know. Now we know that in other science fiction shows and movies, things like Star Trek, they have life form scanning technology that can even identify things like. A, a creature's blood type if they have it right, on file. Right, or a brainwave or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so, so. but there's no explanation here. Not, not that we necessarily expect it. I mean, clearly, if this movie were to explain every single piece of science that's it on display... It would be really long, and, and I would boring. watch it forever, actually. That would, would be, be... I would love that movie. It would, it would be called Arthur C. Clarke's 2001, <laughs> is what it would be called. And there'd probably be fewer... Uh, Fewer uh, uh, hell demons, but maybe more space wolves. I, I'm honestly more confused about that... that visual of the of the split laser thing on board because if you're using i mean if if it's just a a method to let the operator know where he's pointing the beam or she is pointing (laughs) the beam then then i guess that counts but otherwise if it's if it's a visual light spectrum analysis it's not going to penetrate anything and they're clearly trying to sweep rooms with it which would make it pretty useless. Which means that you could do something else like use your eyes. Right. You know, those things that each of the characters had. No, well, (laughs) for a while anyway. (laughs) Some of the characters don't end up with eyes. Because... (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Where we're going, we don't need eyes to see. That's that's exactly what he says. Uh, So uh, I have here in my notes, this is uh, says not so much a note as an observation. This is just one of those things I picked up on while I was watching the movie. The docking bay that the Event Horizon, uh, well, that the Lewis and Clark uses to access the Event Horizon is for reasons that are never explained 
Docking Bay 13. It's X-I-I-I in Roman numerals, so it's 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Dr. Weir, Sam Neill's character, we didn't name him earlier in the podcast, but uh, Lauren reminded me that the character does, in fact, have a name. It's not just Sam, Sam Neill's Neil. character. Um, <laughs> Dr. Weir says that it's the main docking bay. So I don't know why your main docking bay would be 13. I guess this is just one of those little, you know, winks to little the audience. Little nods to the know. audience. Or you could explain it as being um, a representation of 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 how much Dr. Weir needs psychiatric help. Yeah, that we'll get a lot more indication of that in a very short while when they get aboard the event horizon. So they do the scan. It does not come back with any uh, anything that would suggest a, a life form. But then they say, well, we're going to have to do this the old fashioned way, room by room. Well, they, they, they say that there's these weird, like kind of amorphous sort of sort of blobs of life forms kind of everywhere yeah. and that they're not seeing any individual human people, which is right. what they're looking for. Right. They're, so they decide to go onto the ship. Exactly. So a couple of the guys, uh, they, they create an umbilicus, a pathway that will connect the two ships. This is something else that confused me. All right. So the Lewis and Clark has artificial gravity. Right. The event horizon normally would have artificial gravity. But, but at that, that point, system is down. Exactly. Uh, they connect an umbilicus between the Lewis and Clark and the event horizon. As soon as the characters get into the umbilicus, they're in a zero G environment. Back aboard the Lewis and Clark, you still have artificial gravity. I'm wondering where you cut that off. Like, how does the artificial gravity know? Uh, clearly, the artificial gravity, the the gravitons get into your air supply, and so <laughs> if you're not sharing air supplies, then you're not sharing gravitons. I am almost gravitons. certain air supply did not supply any of the music <laughs> in this movie. I'd have to go back and watch it again to see if Air Supply is in this film, but I don't think it is. All right. So uh, anyway, that was another little goofy bit. Uh, so they, they do a quick tour of the ship. You have some characters going toward the front of the ship, which is where the bridge is and the living quarters, the medical center. All of that is on the front end. And this is before they get all of the systems back up. So everyone is in, uh, you know, low gravity. Um, yeah. And... They, they and, have it's, to, and it's very everything is still extremely cold. They don't have temperature online right. yet. They they have uh, magnetic boots which allow them to stick to the uh, to I, the floor. I appreciated that they at least said like, "Hey, we've got magnetic boots," and they even showed a little like, "This is an engaging kind yeah. of kind of sequence." Right. I thought that that was a nice nod yeah. to maybe this could be like reality, science ish. Yes. I did have a problem in that they talk about how the temperature is below freezing, and you see frozen droplets of water floating through the the event horizon. But there's also this water bottle. I assume it's a water bottle. It looks very much like a water bottle, and it is clearly full of liquid and that you, is you in hear, liquid form. Yeah, you hear the sloshing around. noises. So how did that not freeze? Unless, of course, it's not water in that water bottle. It could be another liquid that has a lower freezing point. Um, I can only assume that it is the viscera of hell. Yeah, I was thinking vodka. But anyway, all right, so... <laughs> Uh, it's, you know, honestly, I'm pretty sure that vodka is the viscera. Of hell, <laughs> so that's probably fairly accurate. With both of our okay, yeah, we're we're both right. That's I'm cool with that. So some of the people go toward the forward part of the ship, uh, where, uh, by the way, the, the forward part of the ship where the bridge and living quarters and everything, all of that is separated by an incredibly long hallway from the gravity drive at right, the end. Engineering the that, engineering that whole section, yeah, section but at the end. Specifically, the gra- the gravity drive is really the only thing we ever see on that other side of the ship, right? Even though it's the largest part of the ship, we really just see the gravity drive and then the 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 labyrinthian <laughs> hallways that surround the 
gravity drive for no apparent reason. Because Weir needs help. Yeah. Um, this long neck, I thought, was pretty odd. Uh, I, I, when I first saw the design of the ship, I was like, why would you want a neck that long? And the only thing that I could come up with is if within the world they talk about, uh, you know, the gravity fluctuations, maybe those fluctuations could adversely affect the crew. And by creating this distance, by creating this long neck like corridor, you minimize that. Maybe that's the reason. So I can justify it. I'm willing to give them that yeah. one. Yeah. So, but otherwise you're just thinking like, why it's is the ship? A, it's basically a plot device. Yeah. Because, it looks cool. Uh-huh, and it looks cool. Yeah. And, and you get that good dramatic tension of needing to have people run up and down it in, yeah. during important Or moments. fly up and down it when well, the gravity's not, yeah, yeah. you know, but, or float, I guess would be the more accurate Right. Speaking uh, of, so they do they do turn on the ship's interior gravity, so no one has to have expensive effects anymore for yeah, for a while. For a while, yeah, not till we get to the end. And so we see lots of water splashing down onto the floor and things like that. It was it was neat, neat little effect. We'll have a little bit more to say about the tech in Event Horizon after this short break. Did you notice the ship's log? <laughs> that it's on it's on an optical disc, like yeah. a DVD or a CD? Yeah. yeah. yeah so I, this was made in 1997, so we have to give it that allowance. But it was so funny to me that yeah. they, there's a disc and it's caught inside the computer stuck, system. right, yeah. I, my specific note, I think, was like, oh, yes, optical disc. Yeah, that's right. You know, why go back? You know, I'm, we're just lucky it's not an 8-track. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so the, the ship's log is stored on an optical disc, which we thought was adorable. And uh, this is about when the crew discovers this gravity drive that Dr. Weir has created. Um, and it looks like something out of Hellraiser. Yeah, I said it looks like the same designer who made the Lament configuration, which is the puzzle box in Hellraiser. Right. Would, in this case, it's Dr. Weir must have seen that because that's what the interior of his gravity drive room looks like. I am so I am so worried for him. I honestly <laughs> I, I don't think that he was doing well when he was creating this. I the entire aesthetic design of this ship is very much in contrast to the design of the Lewis and Clark, which is kind of rough and tumble and and has been lived in and utilitarian. Yeah. And the interior of this ship reminds me of nothing more than like a 19th century insane asylum. Yeah. You've got this this very these very brick like metal panels in, in various places. And right. you've got all of this weird Victorian style detailing and, and, and crazy machinery. So it's kind of a, a combination of that asylum and like. Imagine that you've been shrunk down and then thrown into the Home Depot power tool section. <laughs> so you've got these enormous like drill-like things that are turning around you for no apparent reason. Um, I and there's there's a corridor in the end of the film that is shaped like a coffin, and I'm just like, yep. you guys, seriously, you guys, this is amazing. No one, no one said like, hey, Doctor Weir, do you want to take a vacation and go to Disney World? I, I will also say this is. Going back to the the inspiration for the film, I have read, I, I assume this is true, it seems like it's true, that the idea was, what if we had The Shining, but set it in space? Right. In which case, if you're talking about the film version of The Shining, then oh, sure. you know, Jack, Nicholson, Jack Nicholson's character is already pretty freaking crazy before he shows up at the Overlook Hotel. Oh, totally. So and, and Dr. Weir kind of follows that model. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I did want to say that it's actually clever that the... That drive itself is built like a giant gyroscope, yes. like a giant hellish gyroscope, yes. because um, because real spaceships do, in fact, use gyroscopes in their inertial navigation systems, albeit not giant 
puzzle box looking ones. Right. Yeah. The the one that you're talking about in the movie, it's imagine a globe that's inside of a ring that's inside of another ring. And all of these can can rotate independently of each other. Yeah. And when it lines up, it flashes light at you and bad things happen. Um, <laughs> Dr. Weir assures the crew that the gravity drive is not on. And the gravity it's drive is safe. totally on and it's totally not safe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's because the ship, as it turns out, is alive. Uh, I said that uh, another thing that was kind of interesting, I thought it was a little weird. The characters are forced above aboard the event horizon because the the Lewis and Clark is compromised. Um, oh, right. There's a hole breach and their air supply. Um, starts going. <laughs> Not going to make another joke. Yeah. So the everyone, everyone <laughs> aside from a repair crew goes aboard the Event Horizon. The repair crew tries to repair the damage to the Lewis and Clark. So uh, they discover that the oxygen, uh, to be more specific, the carbon dioxide levels are rising and are going to hit because the 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 scrubbers are something something. I don't know. Yeah, the plot the CO two scrubbers are uh-huh. not not functioning properly. And even if they brought the ones aboard from the Lewis and Clark, it would only give them a little extra time. They only have twenty hours of breathable air on the event horizon, which is enormous. It's a huge ship. It's very large. I cannot believe that they only had twenty hours of of breathable air. That maybe, seems really maybe weird. Maybe the gravity drive eats oxygen. <laughs> maybe maybe the hell demons that are in that are living They're in. Heavy breathers. Are heavy breathers. Yeah, it could be. I mean, you know. I mean, statistically, I think most hell demons are in heavy, fact, breathers. heavy breathers. Yeah. And they've so. been on that ship for seven years, so yeah. it's possible. Yeah. Um, I, I also say that the, uh, the another fun little fact, this is another not so technical thing, but just one of those things that if you've watched a lot of movies, you appreciate. So they have the, the sick, sick bay, mm-hmm. a medical center, uh, which supposedly has never been used. Well, on a counter in this medical bay, they have an array of medical tools, most of which are most are made just for films. They're not actual analogs to real medical tools, although well, a few well, of them are. I mean, uh, and a lot of them are, are coroner's tools more than medical tools, right. really. It's the kind of thing that you're not going to see in actual medical practice outside of the Victorian era. So, But if you had ever watched a movie like... The Tim Burton's Batman or Little Shop of Horrors. You will recognize some of these. They're the same medical devices that have shown up in movie after movie whenever there's some form of medical horror element to the film. Mm -hmm. So I thought I appreciated that. I'm like, oh, especially amongst all of these incredibly or not incredibly high tech looking, but but more fancy, shiny, inexplicable bits of medical tech that they've got floating around. Right. Well, moving forward, you know, things go wrong. Demons are unleashed. People are hallucinating. And then that's when we start to see uh, characters try and take action. Dr. Weir wants to go and activate the fail-safe circuit. To turn off the gravity drive. Right. Uh, What's weird is how inconveniently placed the fail-safe circuit is. Uh, Furthermore, it is in this tunnel that, as far as I can tell, is composed of circuit board, which... I think is probably a categorically bad idea for, I mean, first it's sharp, like it's delicate. You don't really want to be crawling around right. on top of it. It reminded me of those scenes in Star Trek The Next Generation, whenever anything was seriously wrong with the it's Enterprise. It's Jeffrey's tube, right. 10 miles away. <laughs> yeah. Like maybe we should start putting that stuff closer to where we work, guys. Furthermore, it's a, it's an entire tunnel made of circuit board, and he has to go to this one very specific panel. As far as I can tell, the only panel within this tunnel of circuit board and pull out another piece of circuit board. Right. And do something to it. Yeah. Yeah. The expansion slot for the event horizon is in an inconvenient location. Go buy a different ship, guys. Uh, (laughs) So also I have a little plot note here. Uh, The commanding officer of the Lewis and Clark 
comes to a conclusion. Uh, right, right. She she says to the captain that she thinks, based upon practically zero evidence whatsoever, that the ship is alive. Now, first of all, she's right. But this, this turns out to be the the fantastical element of the film, yes. Yeah, um, but but how she? Know. I made the same note. I yeah. was just like, I'm not sure where she got that. Yeah, from. it was very convenient. Like the audience is picking up on it, but the characters shouldn't necessarily right. know. I did. I did read that um, nearly half an hour of footage was taken out of the film before it went to theaters. It's um, possible, and, that and, that and that a lot of that was was more along the gore end. And I yeah. think that the film benefited from not having that in there because I thought that the subtle flashes of gore were very effective here. Sure. But, but maybe that was part yeah, of maybe that maybe that cut. gave her some of the the feeling she had. Or maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. We don't know. <laughs> uh, the captain describes what fire in zero G is like and gets it almost exactly wrong. Super wrong. He, he says that it's like liquid which uh, and I, it's, I and it's Lord, Lawrence Fishburne, so he's yeah. very dramatic about it. Yeah, not like me. I can't. I can't manage drama. drama. Uh, well, I can not manage drama, but I'm not dramatic. <laughs> uh, yeah, he says it's like liquid. I I interpreted that to mean that he thought it was like liquid on a, a surface that has gravity, like it behaves like liquid would on Earth. Um, even if he meant liquid in zero g, it's not exactly true. If you were to say light a match in a zero g environment or a microgravity environment it would the the flame would form a little globe around the match head and it would probably burn in a very very uh faint but very hot uh flame like you you would usually get a little blue flame around the head of the match stick as Rather opposed to the elongated the, yellow the blue red yellow thing yeah. that you get mm-hmm. exactly so fire does behave in an interesting way in zero g but not really like a liquid um i have the little bit about Cooper. <laughs> we got to talk uh, about Cooper. Yeah, yeah. So so this is moving uh, as the plot moves forward. Uh, like we said, it becomes a little bit more fantastical and therefore we don't have quite as many things to complain about right. um, or lovingly complain about. But yes, yeah, so so during one of these uh, spacewalks wherein one of the crew members, Cooper, is trying to repair the, the hull Clark, of the yeah. Lewis and Clark, uh, there's an explosion. Yep. Massive catastrophic explosion that destroys the Lewis and Clark. And, uh, and uh, shuttles this little bit of ship that he was standing yeah. on, spinning wildly off into space. Right. So Cooper is on. He he's tethered to this piece of the ship, and the ship is hurtling off into space with Cooper on it. Cooper has uh, no real means of. He has no means of getting. He doesn't have like a jetpack. Yeah, or he's not wearing now. a jetpack, um, which is terrible because I mean NASA and has jetpacks in standard in every spacesuit, and I guess. Standards just slipped by 2047. <sighs> anyway, uh, he, shoddy 2047 standards. Yeah, first thing he does is he he detaches himself from the rotating uh, uh, stuff, which is uh, problematic, too, in that if you were on a rotating piece of equipment and then you let go somehow. And you would, considering that you weigh less than the rotating piece of equipment, you're going to start moving at a slightly different rate of speed than yeah, it is. Your, your mass is different. You're still conserving the angular momentum. Right. So, uh, but your mass is different. So you're going to speed, you're going to turn faster. So we can see this on Earth. If you are on, say, ice skates and you start spinning and then you pull your arms in, or you can try this in your office if you like, sit on a chair that can spin around and around, have someone start spinning you, have your arms out and then start pulling your arms in, you'll start to spin faster. If you're do if you're listening to this in an office right now, I recommend doing this and yes. just seeing just to see what reaction your coworkers. And tell thinking. everybody when they ask you why you were doing that that Josh and Chuck told you to. because <laughs> uh, we don't want to heat. Anyway, so if you were to actually detach yourself, you would start spinning even faster. This is also a problem I have with the film uh, 
gravity, which I don't think is a spoiler because it happens within the trailer. So anyway, yeah. um, uh, he then ends up deciding to use his oxygen supply as a means of propelling himself back to the uh, event horizon. And he, he vents his oxygen and rockets back to the ship. I have a couple of problems with the way this was depicted. Yeah, know. just the fact that it would be physically impossible. The fact that he would, yeah, you, you would have no way of really directing your flight in a meaningful way, and, and nor would you necessarily be flying without going into an even crazier tailspin. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of, it's problematic, but you know, dramatic. It's fun. Cooper, yeah. so Cooper becomes a super spaceman and flies back to the event horizon. Um, and then I've got, uh, I only have one other real note and I'll, and Lauren, I'll, I'll ask you what else you have to say about this. But sure. the last bit is the event horizon has a hull breach in the bridge area. And at this point, the possessed Dr. Weir, spoiler alert, is, uh, is attacking, uh, Lawrence Fishburne. Not the care, not the character. It's Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> it's they, they've personal. got, they've gone so meta. No, no, no. It's, it's Lawrence Fishburne's captain character. So Dr. Weir possessed is attacking the captain. And the breach, uh, the hull is breached. Uh, Dr. Weir gets flung out into space, uh, technically blown out into space, not right. sucked out because mm-hmm. the air pressure. That's how. Right. Um, so uh, the captain ends up trying to crawl up uh, or crawl past where the the uh, hallway ends at the bridge so they can seal it off and thus uh, repressurize part of the event horizon and not get blown out into space. I'm not sure that you'd be able to do that. Like, I don't, considering how much was flying past him, I don't know that you would have the strength to hold on, but, or that the materials they was holding on to would have Wouldn't the strength. Wouldn't just, right. Yeah, that's, I felt very much the same way. I think that if, um, I think that that would be hard enough in the kind of pressure differentiation that you've got, uh, in an airplane, let yeah. alone in, in the vacuum of space. Right. So, so, so it's, he has Herculean strength and he manages to make he's it. He's Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah. He manages to make it into the hallway. Not only does he make it into the hallway, he's also able to rescue a fellow crew member and pull her to safety before closing the doors and sealing it off. Um, I also thought that this would probably make their problem of very little breathable air somewhat exacerbated. Uh, right. And also, also I was confused that within this very same mo- movie a little bit earlier on, one of the other crew members, um, uh, had, had in a uh, hallucination-driven fit, locked himself in an airlock and was going to blow himself out into space. And right. as that cabin depressurized, um, it gave you a lot of really great practical gore effects of of his of his veins starting to pop and his, his, and eyes, his eyes bleeding yeah. and all of these all of these terrible, terrific horror elements. Um, and and none of that happens to these main characters. Well, he's the captain. Just, man. He's <laughs> he's build higher. <laughs> With higher billing, you don't you don't get those easily poppable eyeballs. Oh, I see, I see. That's yeah. that's cool. All it's right, a, it's so a when, benefit when, of the job. When you raise in rank, you just get better eyeballs. Yeah, that's... yeah. Uh, at any rate, that is that's <laughs> kind of silly. Do you have any other uh, notes that you would like to share? Um, I guess also speaking of that airlock situation, it's one of my favorite goofy movie tropes, wherein um, something terrible is about to happen in an airlock, and you have to hack the door. You always have to hack the door. Yeah, and the hacking of the airlock door is always accompanied by um, pulling the panel out and mussing about with wires. And it always takes approximately four seconds longer to do than you actually have. Right. I just I just love that that one little silly. Well, it's also fun that he he curls up into a ball, flies out of the airlock, is caught by the captain who's in a spacewalk, who jumps back into the airlock and manages to get him back into the ship. 
that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And it's a Superman rescue. It, it is a Superman rescue. That That is, I think, later on, there's a certain point at which people outrun some space flames. Yeah. There's some um, space flame outrunning. There's an yeah, explosion outrunning. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. There's also, uh, you know, we didn't really mention it. The pathway to get to the gravity drive, the hallway that goes through uh, to the gravity drive itself. Is lined with explosives just in case. Yeah, there's uh, there's explosives to separate the bridge from the gravity drive in case of catastrophic failure. everyone who has watched Star Trek knows, sometimes it's really important to separate the dish from engineering <laughs> exactly. so that you can use it as a lifeboat. I don't think you would necessarily need a neck that long to be able to do this, but that's okay. No, the, the thing I was going to talk about is that really short hallway where you've got the spinning saw blades oh, of death all around you. Right. Yeah. What was that for? Effect. Yeah. It was creepy. I I know that Dr. Weir said something in passing as they were walking down the hallway, but it literally made no sense to me. Yeah, me me neither. I didn't I didn't catch what he said. I I kind of like I was sort of watching it going like, I'm not going to rewind for that one because that is not going to explain in any satisfying way what this this hallway of saw teeth is doing here. It kind of makes me think of all the parodies of Star Wars and other movies where the characters are standing right at the edge of a really sharp drop in the middle of like the Death Star and like, why don't we put up a railing? You know, (laughs) it's kind of that same sort of thing. Why did we put all these jagged saw blades around this corridor for no apparent reason? My favorite part about that corridor, though, is the dramatic tension involved in it because it is one of the few places on the ship that something bodily horrible does not happen to anybody. And and you would expect it. Sharp. Yeah. It looks like a, a tumbler specifically for killing people. Yeah, it looks. It looks like welcome to the abattoir corridor. This is where we will grind you into teeny tiny bits. But it never happens. It, it, it is not. pretty interesting. Um, um, but but yeah, no. I so so overall, I'm I'm gonna give this film a um a a gold star for trying. I I enjoyed it uh, for what it was. It's a fun schlocky kind of horror movie. Uh, there's some great. Bad acting in it, mm-hmm. as well as some, you know, That's decent really acting. Decent yeah. acting yeah. yeah, I think that I think that Sam Neill did uh, did did a good job he did as a yeah. as a really overblown dramatic villain. villain. Yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed that classic episode. It was so much fun to talk about the technology of a specific film. I should do more of those. Maybe I should do one about the Matrix series because that would be a lot of fun. I think. But if you guys have any suggestions for future topics, whether it's about a specific film technology or just a tech topic in general, send me a message on Twitter. The handle is techstuffhsw, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 